I mean, if anyone is really like that interested or that kind of nerdy, what you can do is you can just get a bag of white flour. I'm sure everyone just has white flour in the cupboard. And if you put it in a lunch bag and then kind of uh, just squeeze it, put your, put your nose in the bag and then kind of squish the bag around and just smell it, squeeze the bag with your nose in it, you're not going to smell anything. And then the next thing you do is just taste it. You're not going to taste anything. You may have some textural bits, but you're not going to have any flavor per se. And then if you do the same thing with some freshly stone milled flour, it's going to be completely night and day. This is The Sustainable Baker, a podcast miniseries exploring how climate change is going to affect the things we love to bake. I'm Caroline Saunders, and I'm talking to the plant breeders, the pastry chefs, the climate experts, and the bakers who are thinking about dessert in the time of climate crisis, and about how we could bake more sustainably today to keep the future looking sweet. Remember the empty grocery store shelves during the pandemic? Well, they were a wake-up call, telling us our food system is more fragile than we realized. One of the missing foods was flour, so I wanted to know, what can we learn from flour about how to make our food system more resilient to future shocks? Let's find out. Well, a baking boom is underway. <laughs> People are coping with self-isolation by making bread and other baked goods, but that's also leading to a shortage of baking ingredients. For non-bakers, flour shortages during the early part of the pandemic might have looked like no more than an annoyance to all the new quarantine sourdough converts. But it was more than that. The shortages also showed that our food supply chains are more fragile than we realized. Unlike the toilet paper and hand sanitizer shortages, the disappearance of flour didn't seem to be about panic buying. It was more like, as grocery store outings started to look more dangerous and the convenience economy collapsed, taking with it our daily sources of bread, rolls, and treats of all kinds, people were confronted with the fact that they'd have to bake more at home if they wanted to keep eating the same things. And, of course, baking was comforting. Amanda Mull reported for The Atlantic in May of 2020 that consumer demand for flour spiked 160% in late March. She went on to explain that empty flour shelves across American grocery stores didn't indicate we were low on wheat. It was quite the contrary. Commercial bakeries and food manufacturers typically make up most U.S. flour demand, but they were buying less because of all the shutdowns, so you'd think there'd be excess left over to reroute towards supermarkets. But the big flour companies struggled to pivot. They were short on the bags they put consumer-sized amounts of flour in, and trucks and drivers were in short supply to take flour to the grocery store. Like many other industrially produced foods we eat, the supply chains for flour turned out to be taut, highly efficient in normal years, but surprisingly vulnerable when sand got in the gears. These supply chain disruptions we saw during COVID-19 may be a window into our climate future, because climate change won't just affect our ability to grow food. It'll also affect the links in the food chain beyond the farm, like how food is processed, how it's stored, and how it gets to us. And all of those links can be vulnerable to extreme weather or even to climate and global development-accelerated pandemics and their attendant economic disruptions. 
One of the economic realities of climate change is that as its effects intensify, we will need global trade more than ever to move food to the parts of the world where agriculture is hardest hit by temperature rise and extreme weather. Yet we'll also need stronger local and regional food systems because they're often more resilient and nimble in the face of shocks than long, brittle, industrialized supply chains. And that's certainly true for flour. COVID-19 gave big flour a stress test and it didn't go so well. So in this episode, we're going to talk about this humble ingredient that's been transformed by industrialization over the past 150 years, and about some of the people working to bring flour back to its regional roots. For people that aren't familiar with, you know, flour, it's like 99% of what we use in America and like around the world is just kind of white flour, which is basically, you can kind of think of it like a like a diet Coke that's just like full of artificial flavors and artificial sweeteners and all of that kind of, you know, like low calorie, no flavor, no taste, no integrity. And then something like a stone milled whole wheat flour, I guess you could call maybe like a Mexican Coke. So it's made with the real sugar and the real vanilla and it comes in a nice glass bottle. And like, I, I don't drink Coke, but you know, it's a better product. It's a better tasting thing. Um, and it's the same with the stone milled flour. That's Grayson Gill, the owner of Belgard Bakery in New Orleans. Milling isn't something most of us spend a lot of brain space thinking about, but without it, there's no bread. And bread has changed over the past century plus because of how milling has changed. Up until the late 1800s, a patchwork of wind or water-powered stone mills covered much of Europe. Van Gogh painted a number of them into pastoral infamy even after they'd fallen out of use. The Moulin Rouge in Paris, which literally translates to the Red Mill, was probably so named around the turn of the century in part because it was a thing for abandoned mills to be repurposed into bars and dance halls. And all these mills were closing at the time because the flour industry was changing, both in Europe and in the United States. What's happened over the past 100 years, and flour is a great example, is we had 24,000 mills in this country just 100 years ago. Um, you know, in, in one county, in my mother's county where she lives, we looked at some history books, and they had up to 70 mills in the one county in the 1800s. And what's happened is we've transition for that local distributed production to this faster, cheaper, bigger centralized food system as we've gone from the, the 24,000 mills in the early 1900s to 166. That's Kevin Morse, founder and CEO of Cairn Spring Mills in the Skagit Valley north of Seattle, one of the regional mills I bought flour from during the pandemic. The flour industry's transformation was in large part thanks to a piece of technology called the roller mill. Back in Europe, mill stones had worked well enough to break down the softer wheats that were native there. But other parts of the world, like America, Russia, and India, grew harder varieties of wheat. And as British demand for imported wheat and for white bread grew during the latter half of the 19th century, it became clear that milling needed to evolve. The new roller mill was able to extract a higher proportion of fine flour from the kernels and separate out the bran and germ to extend shelf life and make the flour whiter. Pretty soon, roller mills replaced stone mills and flour production boomed, quickly giving rise to some of the common flour brands still around today. A stack of golden biscuits, ten feet high. Can do, can do, with gold medal you can do. 
As flour production increased to feed wartime troops, American families, and American bakery-goers alike, mills bought one another up and consolidated. This trend kept on, and today, like many parts of the food system, the flour milling industry is dominated by a few big companies, like Ardent Mills, Archer Daniels Midland, and Riceland Foods. But in the past couple decades especially, more small-scale mills have opened. And when the pandemic came, many of them, like Karen Spring, were ready to rise to the occasion. Now, Kevin hadn't always planned on becoming a miller. Until 2015, he worked at the Nature Conservancy, where he worked on finding common ground between food production and conservation. I spent a decade there looking at market-based strategies to incentivize farmers to implement um, conservation measures and habitat protection on private farmlands um, and waging peace between warring parties in the business, tribal fisheries, environmental and farming community. And so a lot of insight and inspiration for the mill was gained through that experience. Kevin was also a full-time farmer on the side, so he was keenly aware of the tensions between environmental stewardship and modern-day farming. Through those experiences, not only did I understand um, the economics and the realities of farming, but the farmers' um, farmers' plight in being stuck in these commodity systems that really don't sustain them economically, uh, let alone uh, incentivize them um, to do as much with soil health and conservation and caring for the land as they really want to. He had ideas to make farming more sustainable, but at the time, he wasn't finding a receptive audience. The consumer demand just wasn't there. Consumer demand and awareness. Um, even within institutions where I was pitching within the Nature Conservancy and other groups, I'm like, hey, regenerative farming, sustainable farming is really a, a strategy to get to conservation outcomes that are needed, especially in Puget Sound and across the country. Um, I think one of the stats that I remember from my days there was something like 50% or more of all endangered or listed species spend some or all of their lifetime on private farmland. Okay, so if we're actually gonna achieve conservation goals and farming goals, <laughs> we've gotta find better solutions. and. I made the transition out of the nonprofit sector to for-profit because I really felt like market forces could create the opportunity to expand and have impact at a much faster pace and scale. Kevin had an idea, and he approached a local government economic redevelopment organization, the Port of Skagit, to pitch it. Patsy Martin was the port's executive director at the time. He uh, came to the port at one point in time and said, you know, I have this idea for helping um, the Valley stay special, but also it's a, an idea that, that fits into that value-added um, egg sector. He said, all right, well, let's listen to it. And the idea was to um, take uh, our, the grains that could be grown here and, and other places if necessary, but the, the idea was to try to, to bring them in here and um, mill them, and that, that they could take, um, it could be wheat, it could be barley, it could be buckwheat, it could be a, a variety of other things, but to mill them into um, a flour that could be used for baking. And he said, can you help us? And um, he uh, went out and found some uh, folks to help him on the financing end, and we said, you know, we have a building here 
where we had a, a, a propane distributor move out and it was in rough shape. We said, well, we will see if we can find some funds to revamp that building. You find your funds to redo your thing. And he said, um, we also need milling equipment, but not the traditional milling equipment that and the type of equipment that's used today, where it's based on uniform uh, types of grains, that they're all the same size and the same quality, so it's, it's easy to mass produce them. He goes, we need to have specialty um, equipment that's like it was used 100 years ago. And the only place they're doing that is in Europe. So we partnered with them to go find the specialty milling equipment and get that put in the building. That idea became what is today Cairn Spring Mills, a regional mill that sources varieties of grain grown in the Pacific Northwest by nearby farmers. Cairn Spring actually uses the Skagit 1109 variety developed by the Bread Lab down the road that we heard about last episode. And in these regional grains, Kevin finds something close to terroir, but in flour, you kind of have to manage for that. What you know, we, we have found is even with the same unique varietal like um, the WSU Bread Lab Skagit 1109, it will perform and taste differently depending on where we have it grown. So I'll have it grown here in the Skagit Valley, which will maybe produce a lower protein grain, but it's the, the nutrients and the flavor are much more rich because of the soils here. And then I'll have it grown on an organic farm in uh, Walla Walla in the Milton Freewater area. It'll have higher protein and a different flavor profile. And I actually, what I'll do is blend the two to get to the optimal protein and flavor combination. So we, we source regionally to do that because one, we need to manage risk. If I can everything here in the Skagit Valley and it rained in August, like it did this year, I could lose our entire crop for a year and we don't buy off the commodity market. So we source regionally and not only to, to mitigate risk, but to manage for the different specs and flavor profiles that we get out of those, those different climates and regions. Once the flour is combined, it's ready to be milled. Cairn Spring actually uses a hybrid between a stone mill and a roller mill, benefiting from the higher production potential of the roller mill and the stone mill's ability to incorporate the nutrient-rich and flavorful germ into the flour. Pre-COVID, the customers buying this flour were commercial buyers, bakeries, and wholesale accounts. What happened with COVID is before, we were just trying to be very focused and make our way to profitability by serving the customer base of artisan bakers and bakeries. One of those customers is Tartine Bakery in San Francisco. I spoke to its founder, Chad Robertson, who's been working with Cairn Spring since the mill's early days. Every year, you know, they might have one or two or three new grains that they're growing and Kevin will send us a couple of bags and we'll, we'll test with them and be like, this is good for well, well, we can use this in our bread or no, this is too soft. Um, we're going to make cakes and cookies out of it and see how it tastes. And now, you know, all of our croissants, all of our cookies, all of our cakes, all of our bread is made with, you know, their flour. And so they grow some soft stuff that's more like that's good for pastry that doesn't really have um, the gluten strength um, to make bread out of. And then our base flour is, is um, a Yacora Rojo variety, which was, the native to Northern Mexico. And that's just like incredible bread flour. It's almost too strong. We kind of cut it with some softer wheats. I would say I've used incredible grain all over the world. And this is, you know, definitely the best to me. It's just, it's super good, super good stuff. And I, I wouldn't say, 
I mean, I don't like saying the best, but it's up there with the best I've ever used. But the pandemic, of course, changed things for Karen Spring Mills. And then when COVID hit, now that was all food service. That was all restaurants, bakeries. And um, we probably we were estimating we were taking at least a 30% hit when COVID first arrived and we had all of the lockdowns and shutdowns. And so for our own self-preservation, we were like, hey, how do we ensure that we have revenue to sustain us through this hard time ahead over the next couple of years? And that's when we just started getting creative and selling direct to the consumers at the mill. Early days of the pandemic, we were selling 18 to 20,000 pounds of flour every Friday uh, to people who are driving from Montana, Wenatchee, Seattle, Olympia, and buying 50-pound bags of flour directly from the mill. And so we made the conscious decision after that. And after, after hearing the retail customers' feedback, oh, my gosh, my husband just told me this is the best sourdough bread I've ever made. Um, and, and that they really recognized that there was a difference in flavor and quality with local craft flour and grains. And so we made the conscious decision then to say, wow, not only should we do this to make it through the pandemic and make sure we have some resilience in our um, customer base, but let's really explore how we go direct to the consumer and also capture a little more value from our unique supply chain because um, there's only a few craft mills in this country right now. I think we're the first with the, the system and the volume that we can produce. Part of their pivot to selling directly to home bakers was launching a website for online sales. We launched it. And again, this has just been, it's been one of those wild, bumpy rides when you transition from a food service wholesale business to retail. Um, but we, you know, we are selling flour in coffee bags. There's a shortage of flour bags. So we just went ahead and put those up on the website. And um, we've been growing about 20% a month since we opened the store. It's also um, given us more exposure and we have retailers we're working with now. So Met Market has been working with us from the early days. Um, and we're now in all seven of their stores. Uh, we worked with the Puget Sound Food Hub. They distribute our flour. They got us into all of the PCC markets this fall. If you're not in Seattle, PCC and Met Market are some of the local cult favorite grocery chains. And uh, the response online, it's just so gratifying to see customers thanking us, not only for being able to get flour during the pandemic, but just relishing in the joy of the flour and how it's bringing the flavor and um, and all the uh, I, a greater satisfaction of people's baking from many respects to be able to, you know, not just better tasting bread, but also to be able to tell the story of how they're having impact and helping farmers in the environment by supporting a local mill. All told, Karen Spring Mills retail sales spiked during the pandemic, filling gaps for home bakers who would normally have turned to the big brands on grocery store shelves. And this was true across the U.S. as regional flour mills saw their sales boom. One of those others is Carolina Ground in Asheville, which was founded by Jennifer Lapidus to source and mill southern organic grains. Before this year, before last year, before COVID, um, our online sales were to avid home bakers. So, you know, they knew what they were getting for the most part. Once um, the pandemic happened and this 
you know, we got overwhelmed by um, interest in our flower, any flower, people were just looking for flower. And it was really interesting because it was like a new kind of customer that had never baked anything. Carolina Ground also sells wholesale to bakeries, attracting bakers all over the South who are interested in stone-milled flour and Southern ingredients. But beyond North and South Carolina, what I what we've really become is this entity here in the South. So our footprint, I mean, we sell to bakers as far South as Miami um, and, you know, New Orleans. Specifically to Grayson, a Belgard bakery in New Orleans. I mean, we have like, yeah, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Georgia. I mean, realizing too that we sort of needed our bakers like that footprint to be that big. It's it's like, it's not like selling produce. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just, I would love to see everyone using just stone ground flour, but the majority of what bakers use is rolling milk flour. So, you know, we're, we're fulfilling like 10 or 20% of some of these bakeries flour needs. Dominance of roller milled white flour or no, Carolina Ground keeps attracting more customers. Their retail sales doubled during the pandemic. They just got a bigger space, and Jennifer released a cookbook a few months ago called Southern Ground, telling the story of the mill and pulling together her own recipes and those of bakeries she works with across the South. But her ambitions are not for endless growth for endless growth's sake. You know, I've always sort of taken the other the approach of like, how small can we be? You know, like I want to know how small we can be and be sustainable. And our growth, like getting this building sort of showed was like, okay, this is like, I don't want to, I, I want to diversify with what we're doing, you know, have the, have the ability to teach, to host workshops and, and bring it, you know, have this be a community meeting space. And like my goal is to have this be sustainable within that size so that hopefully like another operation, like in Virginia or whatever in the South could exist and to and also be sustained. That diversification is a refrain from millers working at this non-industrial scale. They understand that diversification in the grains their partner farms grow, in the flowers they mill, and in the customers they serve can mean resilience in the face of crisis. And for home bakers, more regional mills means more diverse and resilient sources of flour for any future shocks. And that can make our daily bread more secure. I've been working on these issues and pushing for rebuilding food systems most of my professional life. And it really took this moment in time, I think, to move the needle. Pandemic made people realize how important having local production and supply chains are and how how badly we need them. I mean, we, we had empty shelves across the country because we rely so heavily on centralized food production or out of the country production. Uh, the, the primary hypothesis for me and how built you need to rebuild the food system is actually backwards facing. And it's one of our ch- toughest challenges because to really bring back regional supply chains, local food that's healthier and better and has reduced carbon footprint, we have to rebuild the infrastructure at a regional and local scale. Like more mills again. And according to Kevin, things like better farmer access to loans and more investment in grain silos, things that the federal government or even local governments or local investors could help with. And beyond making our food system more resilient, bringing back smaller mills could have other positive effects too. As a matter of fact, okay, sorry, I'm rambling. 
one of the other things that's exciting now, <laughs> I don't know if you can edit this thing in later, and we didn't really touch on is what happens when you locate a mill is that it becomes a hub for more activity. And so we have our mill, we have Skagit Valley Malting, which is producing for the distilleries and the breweries too. Now all of a sudden, guess what's happening? Um, we have a baker moving in next door to us who's been using our flour. She's a pop-up baker. So she's gonna start doing wholesale and local production of her breads. We have a tortilla company, um, Lupita Nava and her husband Gerardo with um, Tortillas Con Madre. Um, they're out of Linden and they just got into Hagen and they use all of our flour for their tortillas. They're, they're looking at a 5,000 square foot space next to the mill. When you bring back this infrastructure, it's a catalyst for more. And so these are family businesses, family wage jobs. I mean, this is a way to regrow local food economies. And so the mills or the meat processors or whoever that locate are more than just a single entity and having narrow impact. It's a way to continue. I always use that flywheel example. That flywheel starts spinning, it starts going faster and faster and the impact gets bigger and bigger. And we're seeing that happen in real time right now. If you'd like to support the development of a more resilient grain economy, buying flour from regional and local mills is a great place to start. On the latest blog post on sustainablebaker.com, I've linked to a list that writer and food advocate Amy Halloran keeps of small mills across the U.S. You'll see that lots of states have several to choose from, but if all else fails, many of these mills ship nationally. Also on the blog post is a recipe to try once you've got some regional flour in hand. It's a recipe for white wheat cake from Jennifer's new cookbook, Southern Ground. It's flexible enough that several varieties of flour work with it, and however you make it, it is delicious. This is the Sustainable Baker Podcast. A huge thanks to Kevin Morse, Jennifer Lapidus, Patsy Martin, Chad Robertson, and Grayson Gill. You can find links to their work and some of their cookbooks on sustainablebaker.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy baking! Happy baking!